Thank you, Dean. Bless you. And uh, thank you to all of you who are here today and also to those who are watching online. Uh, apologies about some of the technical issues we've had today. I hope you're still able to watch the stream, even if the image is jittery, that the audio still works. We're in First John today. We're continuing our study through John's first epistle. And we are going to be particularly focusing our attention on verses 16 through 18. Lord, I just pray that as, uh, as Dean prayed, that as we open up your word today, that you'd enable me to speak it clearly and truthfully, Lord, and without getting in the way of it myself with any of my own uh, proclivities and, and favorite pet doctrines and whatever else it might be, Lord, I don't want to get in the way of your word. So God, I just pray that your spirit would come today and move in power. I pray, Lord, you would come and just begin to touch hearts in the room, even now. Lord, that this wouldn't just be about opening up a book and learning some doctrine. This isn't about that. This is about meeting with the living God, hearing his words, which are spirit and life. So, Lord, let us do this solemnly and with reverence as we hear your word today. As if you were in the room speaking these words to us. Lord, we pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read to you this passage of scripture from the ESV, starting in verse 12, running through to verse 18. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Hallelujah. I'm going to read... Uh, verses 16 to 18 now. The ESV is a very good translation of this, but I'm going to read it, a uh, transliteration almost, of uh, an, an exact translation from the Greek, uh, so that you get a sense of what's actually there, uh, because these verses are not easy. Um, so I'm going to do that just now from verse 16 to 18. If anyone sees his brother sinning sin not to death, he will ask, and will give life to him, to those sinning not to death. There is sin to death, but concerning this sin, I do not ask. I, I say that you do not ask. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not to death. We know that all those born of God do not keep on sinning, but the one who has been born of God Keeps him, set, um, keeps him, and the evil one cannot touch him. That's literally what we've got there in the original text. Now, there's a few things I want to say before we dive in to, to the passage today that's really important for us. I'm going to keep my eye on the time as well because I don't want to go massively over like usual. Uh, I will try. But there's no getting around the fact that these couple of verses are not the easiest to understand. There are about as many varying views on the meaning of these verses as there are commentaries that actually address these verses. And although we are finding in the previous passage that I read from verse 12, we're finding these themes of assurance and confidence in prayer, we have those same themes of assurance, 
and also of confidence in prayer running through today. But there are other themes also. There's this theme of sin and then John uh, bifurcating the issue of sin into sins that lead to death and sins that do not lead to death. It's an interesting way to speak about sin. Those who claim um, that these verses are simple and clear and and easy to understand to anyone uh, betray their own naivety, to be honest with you. There are several workable understandings of these verses and many more understandings that people have preached and taught and written about which are completely erroneous and do not fit the text. So this little passage here, these two verses, have been absolute bear traps for many preachers throughout history who have thought that it's just a simple issue at play here. And so, you know, I want to preface this by saying I do believe uh, that there is a clear meaning here. I do believe that. I believe that Scripture is the Word of God. I believe it's breathed out by God, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Can you say amen to that? All Scripture, that means the genealogies, and that means John 3.16. It's all breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What does that mean? Well, if it's breathed out by God, that means it is God's Word. He has inspired it. He has spoken it. Now, is God inconsistent? Is there inconsistency and contradiction within God's nature? As any Orthodox Christian would have to say, no. And therefore, the Bible, as his inspired word, as his written word, is consistent within itself. The Bible doesn't refute itself. There may be many places in the Bible that we think we see contradictions, but on closer inspection, these turn out not indeed to be contradictions. As we studied around the time of Easter, the time of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospel of John, it appears to be at a different hour than the other synoptic Gospels. However, on closer inspection, when we see that John writes using Greek Roman time as in hours starting from midnight and the other gospel writers use Jewish time, hours starting from daybreak, we see there's no contradiction at all. But sometimes these issues take a bit of work to get to the, to the base level of. Now, John is dividing sin into two camps, those that do not lead to death and then sin that is to death. And at first glance, that would seem to be a contradiction with the rest of the scriptural witness on sin, and in particular, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, amen. The rest of the gospels, the rest of the epistles of Paul and the apostles are clear that all sin results in death. Under our federal head, Adam, there is only death to all those born of Adam. There is only life to all those born of Jesus Christ. Now, it's the job of the preacher, uh, the pastor, and the theologian to do the work exegetically to get to the bottom of the bare meaning of Scripture. And that's why we practice this type of preaching in this church. That's why we practice expository preaching, which is going verse by verse verse because it is important that you should know God that you should know the God that you sing to every Sunday you should know the God that you witness about to your non-Christian friends it's important that we know him and so when we do this we are feeding one another from God's word and that's why we do this but we have to do the work it's not always as simple as reading a text and simply you're able to come to a a direct knowledge of it straight away. Sometimes texts are a lot more complex than we give them credit. Sometimes texts that seem to be complex are actually very simple. But unless we do the work, uh, we don't get there to the bare meaning, and we miss out on revelation about God. Sadly, there is such a hunger in the Western church these days for revelation about God And we want to go everywhere else but the Bible for that revelation. We want to go to conferences and get the prophetic word from the the visiting speaker. 
16 to 18, these verses are written to Christians, or at least they're written to Christians as far as John could possibly know. It's true to say that in, uh, in meeting lots of Christians, um, it's, it's impossible to know to the nth degree when you're meeting with hundreds of Christians who truly is saved and who isn't, isn't it? Because you don't know everyone. But to the best of his knowledge, these are Christians. And so therefore, this sin that he's talking about sin that does not lead to death and sin which leads to death is sin that can be committed by who? By Christians. So this text is not addressing sin that is committed by people outside of the church. Now there's more to that and we'll get there later in the message but primarily we have to understand here John is writing to Christians. Therefore, commentators and other preachers who want to make the sin that leads to death simply to refer to any sin that an unbeliever commits, they go wrong at this point because this text isn't about non-believers. It's speaking to believers. Whatever the sin that leads to death refers to, it is a sin which a brother or sister or at least somebody who appears to be a brother or sister commits, okay? So the type of sin as well, we need to do the groundwork here. What type of sin is he talking about when he says sin not leading to death? What's he talking about? Well, it's identified in verse 16. In the uh, Greek, it's actually, if anyone sees a brother sinning a sin. It's a strange way to put it, isn't it? But that's literally what you have in the original uh, copies in the, in the original language. If you have a, a New King James or a King James version, you'll probably have that because uh, that translation tries to stick closely to the meaning. But it's a, it's a present participle. So this is a sin. It's sinning a sin, okay? So what does that tell us? Well, first off, it tells us it's not a one-off slip-up. It's not that this is somebody who has just kind of just ballsed up excuse the um, phrase, once, okay? This is somebody who is consistently committing this particular sin. It's not a low-key slip-up. It's not, you know, stealing your wife's whisper bars from the cupboard and getting caught red-handed. This is a, an evident sin which is continuing in the life of a believer. Second off, if you notice, it says, if anyone sees his brother, and by brother we can denote also sister, sinning a sin. So if another Christian is able to see your sin, what does that tell us? It's evident. This is a sin which is consistent in the lifestyle of a Christian and is so consistent and so heinous that other Christians can see it. Okay? Well, that's the type of sin we're talking about. It's become habitual uh, in the life of the believer um, it has become rooted to the point where it's observable to other Christians in their fellowship. So uh, now we've laid some groundwork here that we've understood this letter is to Christians and not to non-Christians. Therefore, this text is addressed to Christians. Secondly, um, that um, this is the type of sin that we're talking about that is consistent and it is evident, now we can move on to consider what is a sin which does not lead to death. Surely that's a contradiction of what Paul says in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin are death. So what does John mean? That there is sin now that doesn't lead to death. Well, well since we've already addressed the fact that he's talking to Christians, he's not talking about non-believers, he's talking to Christians. Is the apostle referring here to a death which is spiritual? As in that these are sins which do not lead to spiritual death? Or is he talking about sins which do not lead to physical death? Because undoubtedly there are sins that can lead to physical death, aren't there? There's drug habits, alcohol addiction that could lead you quite literally to physical death. So what is he meaning by sins that don't lead to death? Is he talking about spiritual or physical? Well, 
whatever type of death he means here, physical or spiritual, he must also mean that same kind of death when he says sin that leads to death. Okay, I hope you're tracking with me. This is quite difficult stuff for a Sunday afternoon. I get it. So he, what I'm saying is this again. He can't mean sin that does not lead to spiritual death in verse 16, but then go on to say sin that leads to natural death without warning, without giving us any note that he's going to change the type of death he's talking about. All right? In verse 16, these types of sin either have to both relate to physical death or both relate to spiritual death. You can't have one being related to spiritual and one relating to natural uh, because there's no warning of that in the text. Also, this is a, a... a big divide amongst commentators. And what I'm going to try and do you today is, is, is give you the three most common views of this text. And then I'll arrive at where I am right now uh, in my understanding and, and help you to see where I think this sits. But there's a, a big divide amongst commentators and preachers on these verses. And the divide is between those who believe that John is referring to sin that leads to physical death and those, on the other hand, who believe he's referring to sin that leads to spiritual death. So these are the two camps, people that think he's talking about spiritual death, those who, sorry, physical death, and those who think he's talking about spiritual death. So there's issues with both. Number one, if John is talking about sins that do not lead to physical death, how would we know? How would we know which sins are going to lead to physical death? Unless the person in question is actually dead, we don't always know if that sin is going to lead to death. You know, if it's spiritual sin, then does this mean that after all that John said to give assurance to believers of their salvation throughout this whole letter, after all of that, is he now telling us that actually, yeah, if you commit certain sins, then all bets are off. You'll you'll be without Jesus forever. Is that really what he's saying? After preaching to us for so long about, you know, if you have the son, you have life, and now he's telling us, well, actually, yeah, but, you know, if you actually trip up and consistently do this particular kind of sin, then, yeah, all of what I've said really means nothing. Is that what he's saying? That would seem to be a stretch. Certainly because elsewhere, John writes in his own gospel, in John 6, when he quotes Jesus, verse 37 to 39, one of the, my favorite passages in all scripture, John 6, 37, 39, all that the Father gives me, do you know who he's talking about there? All that the Father gives me, he's talking about people who the Father is giving to him. This is people being given to the Son by the Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me, not might, will. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that wonderful? Think of that. Anyone who comes to Jesus will never be cast out. So therefore, people who have truck with the doctrines of Calvinism and say, oh, you're saying that certain people are going to come to Jesus and he's going to say, sorry, you're not on my list. No, that's not what we believe. Jesus says, all who come to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that wonderful? Anybody who humbles himself and comes to Jesus will never be cast out. I want you to know that and hear that today. If you are humble of heart, you're ready to ask for forgiveness of sin, Jesus will accept your repentance and give to you life. He says this, all the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of who sent me, that I should lose nothing, nothing of all that he has given me. Hallelujah. Listen to that. I shall lose nothing. Is Jesus a weak savior? who can't even keep hold of all the people who God gives him. He can't keep hold of all those individuals the Father has given to him. He's just like, oh, I can only keep them if they align their free will with me. No, 
I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is a strong savior. Jesus is not up in heaven begging people to come to him. Please, Jesus will have those who he came to save and he will not lose one. So can John really be contradicting what he wrote in his gospel? It would seem unlikely. But still, there are issues with each view. I want to say that there's probably at least two interpretations of these passages that I think work. And I favor one right now, but I I might change my mind in future. Uh, So this is where I'm at. So I'm going to give you the two views, and you may land on whichever you feel um, is the best. You don't have to take pastor's word for it. These are difficult uh, passages, Um, but I think they will help us in our walk with Christ today. I think there's a lot in here to be encouraged by. So number one, the first view that many commentators have of this passage, uh, it's not a view that I subscribe to, but, it, but it's, it's potentially workable. And it's the view that John is using Jewish definitions of sin that lead to death and not to death. So he's using old Jewish terminology. So in the law, there were certain severe sins, weren't there? There were certain sins like murder, incest that would were punishable by by death you would be stoned to death and some jewish teachers would literally refer to these sins as a group of sins called sins that lead to death and there were other sins of course that that were not punishable by death and certain rabbis would call these the sins that do not lead to death so proponents of this view they think that john is just introducing a jewish distinction here to refer to two particular types of sin and that you should pray for deliverance for those who are sinning sins that are not punishable by death but but actually you shouldn't pray for sins that do lead to death Um, either because it should be given over to the magistrates in that particular city or community to then carry out the punishment Um, that's one view or or that they are handed over in some way to um, the judgment of God uh, on those sins and there will be some kind of punishment, temporal punishment from God according, uh, according to those sins. I think there's a couple of issues here with that view. Number one, you've seen over the last like six months how John writes, haven't you? Like he moves at pace, but he, he keeps coming back and repeating himself uh, and saying the same things. So is it likely now that right at the end of his letter, he's introducing some massive concept without warning that he hasn't already told us about? I don't think so. Like, it's unlikely at the back end of this letter, he's now going to just be like, bam, here's, here's some like Jewish law concepts. Now, I don't think it's likely. It's possible, but I'm not, I don't think it's likely. Um, and then secondly, It wouldn't seem likely to me that he'd be suddenly saying, yeah, you know, if you see Christians sinning a particular type of sin, like don't pray for them, that would seem unusual um, since I, I, I think there are lots of issues that might say to us, well, it's impossible for a Christian to commit certain sins that would lead to death in the Old Testament, but it's not impossible for them to. So it would seem like a strange view to me. I don't subscribe to that one. The second view, which is very interesting, and this is uh, held by John MacArthur, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, who's another fantastic commentator, and they believe that um, sin which leads to death, they believe that means God's chastening in certain situations. Say, for example, um, if we look at um, 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to Turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 32. This is interesting because Ruth and Dean uh, led us through that wonderful passage um, from the Westminster Confession, which actually deals with this issue we're about to read about. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven: 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread 
or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now the Greek there doesn't say died actually, it says fallen asleep, which is interesting because in the New Testament only believers fall asleep. You know, non-believers die, they don't fall asleep. So that's interesting. And then he carries on and says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we'd not be judged. Uh, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Another relevant text would be Hebrews 12 verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who he receives. So there in that text of 1 Corinthians 11, we have a clear example of Christians coming to the, the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. We're not told a great deal about what the unworthiness is in this instance, but there's probably sin involved, there's unforgiveness, uh, there's, there's greed, okay? And he says, actually, you're drinking judgment on yourself when you come to the Lord's table in that manner. And actually, that's why many of you are weak, ill, and have died. So there are Christians in Corinth who have actually died because of a judgment from God. They were chastised by death, and some are being chastised with sickness. So God is actually judging them with sickness. This is very crazy stuff, isn't it? I don't think this is something that happens regularly. This would be an unusual circumstance, but there's also God judging uh, some with weakness. And there are a number of occasions in Scripture where God chastises his own people for sin by sending sickness on them. If, if you read in the Old Testament, Numbers 21, the Israelites are grumbling in the desert. What does God do? He sends snakes in among them. And this is the story which we're, uh, we're told again uh, in John 3, where Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness and everyone who looks at that bronze serpent is healed of the venom. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel, actually, isn't it? Um, so there's a number of, uh, of uh, places in the Bible where God actually chastises his own people for si uh, sin by sending a sickness on them, um, and even death in some, some occasions. And um, that includes the New Testament. It's not a very comfortable thing to think on, but there are occasions in the New Testament, 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 Dear me, um, <laughs> there's places in the New Testament where this happens, like Ananias and Sapphira. You know, they they lie to the Holy Spirit and they die. You know, it's a, it's an extraordinary event, and it doesn't happen regularly, but it but it does indeed happen. Now, what's clear on this view, and I think the proponents of this view are right in the sense that there are some sicknesses some weaknesses, and even death amongst Christians throughout the millennia, which are indeed a chastisement from God, a judgment, a temporal judgment from God as a result of sin. However, what we also learn is that that natural death did not lead to spiritual death. They were disciplined because the Bible says, Hebrews 12, 6, he disciplines those he loves. For example, if we were caught in a, a horrendous lifestyle sin that we just couldn't seem to get free of, and let's say, for example, that sin as a Christian would grieve you greatly, wouldn't it? You wouldn't enjoy sinning against the Lord, but let's say the Lord in his mercy took you and took you to be with him for eternal glory, to be glorified with him. It's not such a bad outcome when you think of it like that, is it, you know? But there are rare occasions in Scripture where this does happen. Um, and equally, I think it's, it's worth saying uh, that not every ailment that we face as Christians is a result of sin. That would be foolish to say that. We know that Paul writes in t to Timothy, doesn't he? And he says, listen, take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
He doesn't say, there must be some secret sin in your life, Timothy, because you keep telling me about all your stomach upsets. He says, take some wine. All right, so that the vast majority of sicknesses and illnesses and weaknesses we face have nothing to do with temporal judgments for sin. They're, they're just the fact that we live in a sinful world. Right, so they are sort of ultimately connected with sin, but they're not um, causally affected with sins that we've committed. But I think that what's important for us to take is this, that Christians who would say God will never, never use sin to, or sorry, use sickness to discipline anyone. I would just say uh, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a very well thought out biblical view. Um, and I, I understand why people would say that. I get it. And there are many who would say, you know, Jesus Christ is perfect theology. So therefore, you know, if, if we see Jesus casting sickness on someone, then we'll believe that he does it. But we don't. We just see him healing people. But as others have really, well, better, said it better than I can, when people say that and they want to use the Jesus Christ is perfect theology argument, what they often mean is the Jesus who walked the earth for three years. Sorry, ministered on the earth for three years. That's the Jesus they're talking about you know, because he didn't send any sickness. But they forget that Jesus is pre-existent and exists eternally and that in Revelation, we have Jesus casting, uh, casting the, uh, is it Babylon or is it the, the great, uh, is it some, somebody he casts onto the sickbed, right? We've also got Jesus as the fact that he's part of the Trinity. And so, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united in all that they do. There's no disagreement amongst the Trinity. Therefore, if we see certain chastisements for sin in the Old Testament, we can be sure that Jesus is involved in that too, right? So uh, I don't think it's a regular occurrence, but the Bible does mention it. So I think it's fair to be honest about that and not try and pretend like it's not in our Bibles. Um, it's there. And uh, it's for our own good. We're also told that he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So the bottom line is, on this view, people would say that when he says, I do not say that you should pray for that, proponents of this view like MacArthur and F.F. F. Bruce would say, well, he's actually saying don't pray for the dead. Because there's only one way that you'd know that a sin is leading to physical death, and that's if the person was dead. So they would say, when he says, you know, I do not say that you should pray for that, for sin that leads to death, he's actually saying, don't pray for the dead. Now, I think this explanation, though it's kind of technically plausible, I don't think it fits very well with the context of First John since when John talks about life all the way through this letter, he's not talking about physical life. He's always talking about spiritual life. So I don't think he'd suddenly shift to talk about physical life and chastisement for judgment on sin for the Christian at this point. I, I don't see that, but I think it is, it's possible. It's a possible explanation. And then the final view, this is the most popular view, and this is... Uh, the view by, that's held by Calvin, R.C. Sproul, Alfred, and many others. And this view is the one I'm, I'm sympathetic with. This is where I stand at the moment. And this view holds that the terms for death, sins that lead to death and sins that do not lead to death, and the term for life, that God will give him life, these terms refer to spiritual death and spiritual life. And in this view, it says that sin, which doesn't lead to death, is actually the only kind of sin that you can do. As a Christian, you sin, don't you? Be honest, we all sin. And John's already told us, you know, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. So we all sin. But actually, since all of our sin, both pre-Christ and after Christ, after we came to Christ, all of it has been atoned for at the cross, which means now, even when we do sin, 
it doesn't lead to spiritual death, does it? We're only headed one place. John's already told us that. He who has the Son has life. How do we know we have the Son? Well, we're going to love one another. We're going to love the truth. (coughs) So this is how we know. So all sin that Christians do is sin not unto death. That's what proponents of this view would say. So if a Christian can only sin a sin which doesn't lead to death, then what does John mean by saying that there is a sin which leads to death? What does he mean by that? Well, a parallel passage would be Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 9. One of the toughest passages that divides Christians all over the world. And it's this, Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 9. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a a crop, sorry, useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to to salvation. R.C. Sproul says this about this passage uh, that is about 1 John 5, 16 to 18. He says this, the sin that leads to death is one that produces spiritual death is the view of those who believe that the sin leads to death refers to the sin of apostasy, unbelief in the gospel, upon which a true believer would lose his salvation suffer spiritual death. Similarly, it could refer to a sin of apostasy, apostasy rather, that reveals that a professing Christian was never really a Christian at all. The second option, the one I've just mentioned, that the sin of apostasy reveals an individual was never truly a Christian, is a profession that only false Christians make. And and R.C. Sproul believes that's the best fit for this epistle. And I think this view is true because we read uh, earlier in um, John's letter about what life looks like, okay? So first of all, let me dive back into Hebrews 6 because there's a lot left unsaid there. This passage in Hebrews 6 is a very challenging one. I haven't got time to go into depth on it today, but what I can say is that we're talking about somebody who has been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, tasted, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fallen away. So that's a lot of things to have experienced, isn't it? And that would certainly seem to look like somebody who's a Christian. That would certainly seem to be the case. However, they fall away. And what Paul, Paul, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, um, but the writer of Hebrews goes on to say is this. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. So better things than the things I've just mentioned, things that belong to salvation. Isn't that interesting? So there's a distinction there between these things I've just mentioned that can be experienced by somebody who is actually not belonging to salvation, even though they can experience all these things and then fall away. I think also... The text earlier on in in John, um, I think it's John, 1 John 2. Let me try and pull it up. Yeah, 
1 John 2.19. John is talking earlier on in this same letter about people that have fallen away, isn't he? There's this group of people who were part of this Christian fellowship that he's writing to, but they've gone away. They've started saying things about Jesus that, you know, he's not the eternal son of God, that he wasn't truly human. Um, They're starting to say some strange things about Jesus. Clearly, there's some kind of lack of love towards towards one another as well in that group. And John says this about them. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. It's a very difficult text to understand, but right now I believe that that third explanation is the best in my current understanding is that this is talking about spiritual life and spiritual death um, and that the sins that do not lead to death, the sins that we commit, the sin which leads to death that he mentions would seem to be the same sin that these false Christians who have left the community that he's writing to have committed. And that is, they were never truly Christians in the first place. They only appeared to be. They made a false confession of faith, but then they revealed their false Christianity by going out, not just out geographically and leaving the church, but out from the church in terms of an apostolic confession of who Jesus was. They started saying, yeah, you know, I don't believe that he was fully human. Uh, We don't fully believe uh, that Jesus is, is God and, and human at the same time in the way that Paul says or the way that John says, they revealed their false profession by the fact they went out from the church, both physically, they removed themselves, and in terms of their teaching, okay? So that's my current understanding of that text. So what? <laughs> so what? Now we can finally move to the final bit here, which is application. Now we've done the hard work of understanding John's language. Oh, I should say this as well. Another reason why I think it's spiritual death and not physical death that's being talked about here is 1 John 5.12. Just a few verses earlier, John says this. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So he equivocates life as having Jesus Christ. So what's death? If life is having Jesus Christ, what's death? Not having Jesus Christ, exactly. So the sin which leads to death is a sin that separates you from having Jesus. And what has John told us right the way through this letter? Having Jesus is believing the truth about him, believing the biblical witness about who he is. He's fully man, he's fully God, he never sinned, right? Believing the truth about Jesus. Um, Also, having the Son would be loving one another and loving God, sharing that love between ourselves and the Lord and between ourselves and one another, Um, loving the truth, uh, forgiving one another. So these are the signs uh, that we, um, we know God. So now we've done all the hard work, let's move to application. John follows up verses 13 to 15 when he talks about confidence in prayer, that we can pray for what we want for what, and we can ask God for our requests and he'll answer them. He moves on to, to, to talk about prayer for Christian brothers and sisters, that they might be delivered from sin. That's what we call intercessory prayer. That's praying on behalf of another John is saying we should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and particularly pray for them by name. Pray for them as individuals, not generically. It's not talking here about a kind of prayer that's like, oh God, I just pray for all of the brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. He's actually talking about praying for individuals, people we know, to pray on behalf of them by name. Church, I want to say how important is that? 
How important is that, is a, is a fellowship, is that to take one another individually to the Lord in prayer. Every week, you know, this is something I'm trying to do, is just go through all the names in the church and just lift each one of you up in prayer every week individually and pray the Lord's grace and mercy over your lives. Now, I don't know how many of us there are in the church at the moment, to be honest, but imagine if each one of us every week was lifting the other individually up in prayer. Even if we got into small groups, imagine this, in little prayer groups, and we committed in these small prayer groups to pray for one another by name every week. The text here says that when we pray on behalf of a brother or a sister in Christ, God will give them what? Life. God will give them life life. This is incredible. <clears throat> also, the Greek word for ask here, he will ask and he will give him life. It's from, it's from the word aiteo, aiteo. And that word actually means demand. That's what it literally means, to demand. When we place a demand on God for an individual, when we, we plead for them, that's another good translation of that Greek word. When we plead before God, for a brother or sister in Christ, for them to be holy, for them to steer clear of sin, and particularly those brothers and sisters in Christ who are confessing that they're struggling with sin, when we come before God and plead with God for them, it says he will give him life or he will give her life. John says in response to your prayers for another Christian, God gives them life. And in fact, most of the translations, ESV, NIV, NASB, they say this, God will give him life. But in the Greek, the one actually doing the verb of giving life isn't actually specifically named. It just says this, he will ask, that is you will ask, and he will give him life. So either way, it's God giving the life, but I also think, isn't it interesting, how it almost sounds here like by your prayers, you're literally participating in giving life to another brother or sister, goodness me. In a very real sense, when you pray for a brother or sister in Christ, you are giving them life. When we think like that, isn't it so clear why Paul was always telling people, please pray for me, pray for me, keep me in your prayers. Do you covet the prayers of others? I want to ask that. Do we really covet other people's prayers when we get into a, a mess? I think so often in our troubles, we look straight past prayer as a possible option for deliverance. We, we don't contact our Christian friends and go, please pray. The first thing we do is, is look for a way out ourselves, practically. You know, how, how, can I, how can I get a ladder up against this pit wall and climb out myself? You know, can I scramble out with my fingernails? Is there any other way than confessing to brothers and sisters that I'm in need? You know, that's the last thing I want to do is tell other Christians what a mess I'm making of this situation. Uh, I, 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 that's the last resort for me. But in fact, it's Paul over and over again that asks for prayer because he understands if people are praying for me, that's life for me. And what's life? We've just seen it defined. That life is a closer intimacy with Jesus. It's drawing you in. It, it, it's God coming right up close to you in that situation. That's what's happening when we pray. You know, I think this. I, I think if we could be braver with one another, if we could be braver and let our guards down, just, so, just enough so that we could see who we truly are, right? Enough to be able to pray for one another accurately, knowing one another's struggles and weaknesses, knowing one another's temptations. I'm not saying that we've all got to hang our dirty laundry out to dry. I, I don't think that's, that's healthy. But there are certain relationships, aren't there, that God opens up for you where you know you're safe, where you know you can tell this person what's really going on, and they're not going to go and blab. And, and I think in those types of of Holy Spirit relationships within this church, within HCC, if we could learn to just let the guard down a little bit, 
just let the mass down ever so slightly, we'd really begin to see life just poured into our community. Life for holiness. Life for strength. You know? I think that'd be amazing. I don't know what you feel about that, but I, I know I need that kind of prayer. You know? It's a challenge for me to be more open with brothers and sisters in this fellowship. So in conclusion, of all that we've seen in this passage, and we know it's hard, it's been difficult, and I'm sorry it's been tricky on this Sunday afternoon to stick, stick with it, but of all we've seen, we have seen several incredible truths. Number one, we've seen this, that even though we still sin as Christians, the sin that we do now is not unto death. The sin you do now cannot condemn you to death for eternity. Why? Because through the grace and goodness of God, he has forgiven all of your sins before Christ and after. All of them met with forgiveness at the cross. To those outside of a relationship with Jesus, all sin is unto death. There's no such thing as sin not unto death for a non-Christian. Without Christ, sin leads to eternal punishment in hell, ultimate death. Either your sins are paid for by Christ's death or they will be paid for by your own spiritual death and physical death indeed. The question is, which will it be? Which will it be? I'm assured that all of you in here know the answer to that question and have made that decision, but for anyone maybe watching online, I don't know where you're up to responding to that question. I pray that your faith would be in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And we've seen also that there is such a thing as a sin which leads to death. Though John makes plain to anyone, uh, to everyone rather, that this sin is only ever committed by somebody who appears to be a Christian but is not truly a Christian since they demonstrated by that by going out from us. It's a scary thought and I think the Bible does leave us warnings in Hebrews and in this letter here. I think by the grace of God in order to spur us on in our Christian walk to make sure that we examine ourselves in our theology, in what we know to be true about Jesus, and in our fervency to follow Jesus as well. I think these warnings are there for us to spur us on. You know, every piece of scripture, however hard to understand or scary, is there for your benefit, brothers and sisters. And finally, we've seen the great efficacy of prayer on behalf of one another, that it sets us free from sin. I, I want to just say now, just close your eyes as we finish and pray. Um, all of us get stuck in ruts from time to time, even in our Christian walk. All of us do. You can get stuck in bad habits. And I, I just want to uh, give you a moment right now. If you know um, that that's true of you, that you've gotten stuck in some some bad habits that you know um, are not God's best for you, um, then now's the chance to just bring those to, to the forefront now of your mind and just to confess them and just ask the Lord again for forgiveness and grace in that area of your life. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we go forth from this uh, meeting. Lord, I, help, I pray you'd help us to carry in our hearts brothers and sisters within this fellowship who we can pray for on a regular basis. Lift them up in prayer so that you might give them life. And Lord, we pray that as we do this, we'd see such an outpouring of grace and power in the Holy Spirit we'd see a revival of holiness and zeal for the word of God in this church. Lord, a real desire to walk with you and be obedient to you, even in the most difficult situations. Lord, to be able to 
turn away from the temptations of sin, the flesh, and of the devil, and walk closely in lockstep with you. We pray that in your mighty name, that this church might be known for holiness and passion and a love for Jesus and for his word. We pray this all in your mighty name. Amen. I'm going to invite Rob back up and the team, and they're going to lead us in a, in a final song of worship. I want to say a big round of applause to you all as well, because that was not easy. Uh, <laughs> you sat through it, you stuck with it, and uh, I hope that the Lord spoke to you in some way today that's going to be an encouragement to you.